All right, friends, um, I'm hoping that this will be our last time processing to IFS for our, for our sermon and for our prayers. Uh, it's possible we might need to do it one more week. It depends on exactly where they get. He thinks the sheetrock will be finished and he'll be able to hang a couple of doors for us, which would be really exciting. And then at that point, too, we can also go back to uh, having a children's sermon every week, which we, which we were doing for many months where we were having the children come up and then they would process out after that point. And uh, I've been missing that part in the service as well. Uh, so I, I look forward to that, that return. I want to remind you um, that we're in the middle of a sermon series on difficult passages from the book of Numbers. And this is a really appropriate series to be having in Lent because Numbers is a time where Israel is tabernacling in the wilderness. They're being tested for 40 years before entering the promised land. And during Lent, we remember those 40 years through 40 days. Obviously, in the reading that we read this morning, Jesus was being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And unlike Israel, Jesus was found faithful. Well, during Lent, um, we're all, um, you know, there, there's usually extra disciplines in our lives. Many of the people in this community um, are fasting together from, ver uh, together, um, from various things. And so it's appropriate that we, that we be looking at, at numbers, that we could be considering God's people in their time in the wilderness. Um, where we've been so far is that two weeks ago, um, Sarah kicked off the series by talking about just some of the difficulties we have treating the Old Testament as God's word. As Christians, if we're honest with ourselves, we look at some of these passages in the Old Testament, we look at some of the things that Yahweh did, and we say, I'm uncomfortable with that. Is that the same God as we find in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ? And she was helping us wrestle with some of those things. And last week, we looked at a passage um, from Numbers 5. Um, it, it was a, it was a, a law um, of dealing with a woman who's suspected of adultery. And it's just a really uncomfortable passage. I could feel the tension when we came in here after the reading last week. Just a really uncomfortable passage to be reading in this cultural context. Um, but as we fleshed it out, we saw that the Lord was protecting women through this passage. And we ultimately saw that Jesus himself stood alone before the Father and drank the cup of our wrath. Well, this morning we're going to look at another passage from Romans 20, verses 1 through 13. And I want to begin with a question. Who is the greatest human figure in the Old Testament? And I suspect that some of us would say David, who's the most famous king of Israel who received the Messianic promise, or maybe the great Messianic prophet Isaiah, or perhaps the righteous man Job. But I think for many Christians and Jews alike, perhaps the majority, we would point to Moses. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, portray Moses as the greatest of Israel's prophets. In Numbers 12, the Lord himself says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So with other prophets, the Lord speaks in visions and dreams and riddles. But with Moses, the Lord manifests his true form. He speaks mouth to mouth as with a friend. And last week I brought up that in Hebrews 1, God's revelation becomes clearer 
for us once Jesus Christ comes on the scene because he's the sun, he's the radiance of God's glory. And so it's appropriate for us as Christians to read scripture through the lens of Christ, to read back through the lens of Christ because he's the clearest picture that we have of the image of God. But here in the Old Testament we see that there's different sort of gradations of clarity even here. So in, in the Old Covenant the idea was that they would read the rest of the history and the Psalms and the prophets through the law that was given through Moses. So it was important to kind of root everything and see everything through that. Continuing on this theme of the greatness of Moses, consider the epitaph at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which seems to be written by a much gen later generation, sort of reflecting back on the figure of Moses. As Moses dies, the scriptures say, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So in essence, the passage is saying that Moses' leadership has never been surpassed, at least not to that point. I mean, we do get this prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that there's going to be another prophet like Moses one day, and this finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But up to this point, they had yet to see his equal. So we see Moses is held in the highest regard among God's people, and even by God and God himself. And yet I wonder, how many of us have truly wrestled with the fact that this same Moses... The greatest human figure in the Old Testament, probably, that he was disqualified from entering the promised land. He wasn't deemed worthy. That's a little disturbing, don't you think? <laughs> and what makes it even more disturbing is that Moses' mistakes seem so small, so insignificant compared to this lifetime of faithfulness. In fact, if we're honest, when we look at Numbers 20, it's hard to say what Moses actually did wrong. One Christian scholar calls it the most enigmatic incident of the entire Torah. And this opinion is common among Jewish scholars as well. In fact, I, I, I read one article where there was listed at least ten different interpretations of what Moses did wrong. And one theory that was suggested was that the text was intentionally ambiguous in order to either protect Moses' heroic image or perhaps to just kind of get us to wrestle with it more and look more and search more. But whatever the correct interpretation may be, getting to the bottom of this is not simply a matter of historical curiosity. Because it touches on how we view God. The deeper issue at stake is not so much the fate of Moses. It's whether the God of the Old Testament is petty or moody, as many opponents of the faith claim. Our reading from Numbers 20 today deals with the incident in question. If you please take it out. Um, and as we dig into the text, I hope it will become clearer to us what actually went wrong. And even if some degree of mystery remains in that. And I also hope that we'll go away with a greater sense of confidence in God's unchanging character. But let me pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we stand before you humbled today to be looking at the failings of a servant that um, seems to have been so much more faithful than we are. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds to what your word says, especially about you and especially about the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking down at verses 2 through 5, they kind of set the stage for the drama. In verse 2, the people assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. 
And of course, there's been a whole slew of complaints that the Israelites have voiced during their time in the wilderness. Monotonous food, desire for power, envy, self-protection. And since many of these complaints really roused the Lord's anger, we've kind of been conditioned at this point as readers to just think that all of their complaints are invalid. But I don't think that that's completely fair in this instance, and we'll see why. The central complaint here is that there's no water to drink. We see that in verse 5. In fact, the text keeps the topic of water on our minds throughout by mentioning about every other verse. And the Israelites' past complaints about lack of variety in their diet are one thing. But complaining about having no water in the desert seems pretty reasonable, even if they still sound pretty faithless and ungrateful as they voice this complaint. It's helpful to compare this story with the first wilderness complaint of the Israelites back in Exodus 17. And a comparison between these passages is so illuminating that Professor David Wenham calls it the key to the problem of understanding Moses' fall. So when we compare these things, when we compare the people complaining about lack of water in both cases, we really we, a clearer picture emerges of what's actually going on here in Numbers 20. So in, in Exodus 17... The people complain about lack of water. There's this similar tone of ingratitude, but far from rebuking them, the Lord miraculously provided water from a rock through Moses. This gives us an initial, an initial clue about the kind of response that the, that the Lord seemed to be desiring out of Moses in this case, in Numbers 20. In Exodus 17, the Lord gives three distinct commands. To bring some elders together, to take his staff, and to strike the rock. So here in Numbers 20, the Lord gives three commands as well, but notice they're slightly different. In verses one, uh, verse 8, the Lord says, take the staff, we got that again, assemble the congregation, so along with Aaron. And so in Exodus 17, we have just the elders, but here it's an even more public occasion. The Lord wants you to assemble the whole congregation and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So notice the command is to speak to the rock and not to strike the rock with a staff. And this is to be done in the sight of the congregation, before their eyes. But whereas the commands of the Lord in these two stories are slightly different, the words and actions of Moses are drastically different. Let's take a closer look at how Moses responds in verses 10 and 11. And these are the critical verses where we find out what really went wrong. First, Moses sinned through his speech, and then through his actions. Verse 10 says, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. So far, so good. He's completed the first two parts of the Lord's instruction. He grabbed his staff in verse 9, and now he's gathered the assembly before the rock with Aaron. But let's pay attention to what's happened next. It says, And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? So where did that part come from? <laughs> There are several problems with Moses' leadership here. The first problem is Moses' anger. Scripture is rife with warnings about the folly of uncontrolled anger. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. In the book, The Bible Jesus Read, which I've mentioned a couple of times over the last few weeks, Philip Yancey captures this, the essence of Moses' outburst here. He writes, Only once did Moses' anger rear up strongly enough, uh, strongly enough to defy God himself. 
when Moses smashed his walking stick against a rock in anger. You want water? I'll give you water, he screamed at the thirsty whiners. This lapse cost him the dream of his life, the chance to set foot in the promised land. So in contrast, we don't actually see a hint of anger in the Lord's response to his people's request. Clearly, God is capable of getting upset with his people, and in such cases, he expresses himself. But here, Moses doesn't seem to be in step with the Lord's heart. How are we doing with anger this morning, brothers and sisters? Does it have a foothold in your life? Can I be honest and confess to you that I get angry with Avila and Nora, even sometimes when they're giving me legitimate requests? We need to hear this warning from Moses' story. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James says. Second, while God takes the people's complaint over lack of water seriously, Moses' words mitigate their genuine need. And even issue a verbal assault, calling the people rebels. Raymond Brown calls this a misuse of the leader's gift of communication. And as a result, the angry rebuke of a self-willed speaker spoils God's demonstration of mercy. Ironically, Moses calls the people rebels, but the Lord turns the tables later on in verse 24 when he confronts Moses and Aaron, referring to their actions as rebellions. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Moses' language seems to attribute the power behind the miracle to himself rather than God. He says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Especially in light of the Lord's response, it seems like a good possibility that Moses and Aaron were guilty of stealing God's thunder here. You know we like to steal God's thunder? I remember um, our first year uh, on InterVarsity staff, Carissa and I brought a team of students, actually, Mike was there too, uh, to Mexico City um, to learn how to work with the poor um, from this great ministry called Armonia. And this, this man, Senor Saul, and his family had been working there for like 20, 25 years at this point. And we're just learning so much about what the scripture says about God's heart for the poor. We're learning so much about um, just the sensitive ways in which they're empowering the poor um, in, in these slums in, uh, in Mexico City and around other parts of Mexico. And I remember uh, about a week and a half, two weeks into the trip, we're having this conversation. We're studying the Bible. And we just started to feel pretty self-righteous. And we're just like... What's the church doing over in the United States? We gotta go. I mean, what are they doing? They're falling asleep at the wheel. We need to go back and we need to go, you know, educate them and blah, 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 blah. These churches that just supported us to go on this mission trip to learn about God's heart for the poor. And by the way, most of the people in this group, this was like a totally new thing for them, too. So like two weeks ago, they weren't thinking any of these thoughts. But now that, now that we've been studying the Bible for a while, little while, we're feeling very self-righteous. And we're feeling like we got this. And we're going to set everybody straight. I, I hope that Incarnation Tallahassee will be a place where we grow to be skilled at loving the poor, at loving the least. We had um, a, a, a seminar, Jill Ashu over at St. Peter's led a seminar for us on that very topic yesterday morning. But if we steal God's thunder in this, and it turns into self-righteousness, I warn you that we will become twice the child of hell as we were before. That's what happens when we steal God's thunder. 
All right, so far we've only looked at how Moses went astray in his speech, but the problems continue as we look at his actions. Verse 11 says, And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. So notice the extra detail in the text, which seems to kind of create a sense of drama and calls us as the readers to key in on what Moses is doing. It says, And Moses lifted up his staff, it's almost as if the text is saying, pay attention to what happened, what's happening here. Is this what God told him to do? And then the faithful moment when Moses struck the rock with his staff, which he wasn't supposed to do at all, and not only once, but twice. Wenham writes, though this may seem like a minor deviation, the leaders of Israel were meant to be scrupulous in exact obedience to the law and God's instructions. This is established in, in, uh, or earlier on in the book of Numbers and in and, and Leviticus where the priests start kind of freelancing and the Lord makes it abundantly clear that when he gives commands they're supposed to be followed. Of course a fascinating aspect of this passage is that despite Moses' rebellion the miracle still took place. So the rocks still brought forth water even abundantly so that the congregation drank and their livestock. I hope it's comforting for you all this morning to consider that the sins of your leaders um, doesn't inhibit the Lord from providing good things. So we've looked at the events leading up to Moses' sin, and then at the sin itself. Now we'll take a closer look at God's response to Moses and Aaron. In essence, the Lord accuses them of two things in verse 12. Firstly, they did not believe God, that God could bring water through mere speech, rather than through striking the rock. I read this one article that had a, had a real clever title. It, it said, um, Why Did Moses Strike Out? That was the title of the article. And, uh, and what the person suggests, this guy Beck suggests, that um, perhaps, Moses, perhaps the problem here has more to do with geology than theology. Because at this point, as opposed to in Exodus 17, a different Hebrew word is used for rock. And they're in a totally different region. And they're in the wilderness of Zin, and this is a place where the Bedouins are known for knowing these kind of limestone caps that are on rocks. And if they knock on the rock, water can come out, if, if you kind of know what you're doing there. And so he's kind of suggesting that, um, that the Lord wanted to show a miracle by just having him speak to the rock. That he didn't even need him to use his staff, that, that he, he wanted to show a miracle in this way. And the article seems a little bit speculative. But it is true that in this cultural context, it would have taken greater faith to believe that mere words could produce a waterfall. Right? That would have taken greater faith. And Moses and Aaron are accused that the Lord says, you did not believe. In addition, God says that they failed to uphold him as holy in the eyes of the people. And this second point can't be emphasized enough. Holiness is a central theme in the book of throughout all the Torah. And the consistent message is that the Lord is deeply concerned about the issue of holiness, displaying his own holiness to Israel and insisting that his people be holy because he's holy. I think that it's telling that even today, there are many who reject the faith and when you ask them why, what they'll do is they'll, they'll give you a laundry list of different things that they know Christian leaders have done, either public figures or people in their lives. People who have failed to sanctify the Lord in the eyes of the people. This is what happens when God's representative leaders 
are not faithful to uphold God as holy in the eyes of the people. It's not that God becomes any less holy. Let's, let's be clear about that. But there's a sense in which it's less manifest to the understanding of the people because these people who are supposed to be representing God are acting as shysters or swindlers or incredibly angry people or incredibly stressed out people or incredibly manipulative people. Please pray for us. Incarnation. So perhaps this passage is not as ambiguous as it seemed at first. Dennis Olson helpfully sums up Moses and Aaron's failing in three points. It involves disobedience of God's command, ascribing to themselves power and honor, and not trusting in God's power to fulfill God's promise. So in short, disobedience, self-exaltation, and unbelief. These are the reasons why Moses was excluded from the promised land. Basil the Great says that this passage is a clear demonstration of what the Apostle Paul called the severity of God. Yet Romans 11.12 also speaks of God's kindness. The verse reads, Consider therefore the kindness and the severity of God. As we look at this passage, I think we see both. The Lord's kindness, His desire to provide water for this complaining and undeserving people, and His severity toward a leader who's become wayward. Growing up, uh, Carissa was a part of this program called Evangelism Explosion. And besides the awesome name of that program, <laughs> it's built on this premise that um, when you ask a person, why do you think God should let you into heaven? Um, that people generally respond, well, because I'm a good person. Now, Times have changed in the last few decades. We're living in an increasingly post-Christian culture. And if you ask somebody today, why do you think God should let you into heaven? It's very possible that somebody would say, well, I don't know if there's a heaven. I don't know if there's a hell. I don't know if there's a God at all. But I'm not talking about the merits of this continued method of evangelism, which probably would work still in some places and maybe not in others. But for those of us um, who do believe in heaven and hell, I still think that it's a popular answer. Why? Why do you think God should let you into heaven? Because I'm a good person. Looking over the Ten Commandments, people will probably admit that they've broken a few from time to time. But in general, they feel the good outweighs the bad. But what if even the man who received the commandments from the finger of God was not considered worthy of entering the promised land? If we're honest, this is a bit unsettling. And the problem is not so much theological, it's personal. We know that the Lord is completely holy and that Moses wasn't perfect, but we also know that Moses was light years beyond us. So even the book of Numbers itself describes Moses as more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. So if a man like that couldn't make it into the promised land, what hope do you and I have at salvation? The answer is none. <laughs> if we trust in our own righteousness to save us. Yet even in the Pentateuch, and especially during this time in the wilderness, we're given shadows of a salvation that's yet to be fully revealed. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the promised land. Fallen short of a holy God. 
Yet Moses, the new Moses, is more than an authoritative teacher. He's our Savior. The Savior of a world and of a people that needed saving. He is the true Israelite, the only obedient one. We saw in our gospel reading today, he submitted to a sinner's baptism, fulfilling all righteousness on behalf of sinful humanity. Jesus reenacted Israel's experience in the wilderness, but this time, Jesus does what the Israelites and even Moses failed to do. Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness. Jesus went through the waters of baptism into the wilderness. God's people were led by the cloud and the pillar of fire. God's Son was led by the Holy Spirit. Israel was tested for 40 years. Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And Jesus responds to each temptation with a quotation from Moses, from Deuteronomy. Moses' final testimony to the people of Israel as they're being tested in the wilderness. But while Israel didn't pass the test, and the first generation died off without crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land, the new Joshua, Yeshua, remains faithful. And all those who are, whose lives are hidden in him by faith will be saved. Amen. So in closing, I want to bring us back to Moses, to this life that seemed so impressive to us, and his sin that may have seemed so insignificant at the beginning. Is it that God is nitpicky and petty? Or is it that the Lord, unlike Moses, is completely righteous, completely free of any mixing with sin or compromise. If we're discouraged by Moses' fate, we should remember Romans 15.4, which says, Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So if we read Numbers and we walk away hopeless, we haven't really understood it how, we've been, how we were meant to understand it. God is indeed completely righteous. And through our Savior, Jesus Christ, He is completely righteous on our behalf. He is righteous on behalf of Moses, who actually finally turns up in the promised land at the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus. And He's righteous on behalf of all those who fall far shorter than Moses. Thanks be to God. I want us to close.